in a way that they can engage more fully. But as always, kids are welcome to be with us here uh, in the sanctuary for our sermon today. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Before we get to our text, I was thinking about the movie Despicable Me. Anybody like the movie Despicable Me? I had an adult, adult this morning tell me it's one of their favorite movies. So um, if you've seen the movie, you've, if, or if you haven't seen the movie, you, you've probably seen Minion, the Minions, these little uh, yellow creatures that wear blue overalls, and they're on commercials, and they're all over, and they're quite funny. Um, so who doesn't love Minions? But it's the movie, Despicable Me, that made the Minions famous. But the main theme of the movie isn't about the minions at all. It's about a, how a supervillain's heart is changed. Gru is this evil supervillain, and he adopts three sisters, not out of kindness and a desire to have a family, but to use them to help him steal a shrink ray from one of his nemesis. And by using these little girls to get into his fortress by them pretending to sell cookies. But the more the girls love their weird, strange, and evil adoptive dad, his heart begins to change. He begins to care and feel things that he's never felt. He begins to love others, especially these little girls. Their active love for Gru, even when he clearly doesn't deserve it, is what changes his heart. It's what wins him. Today, Peter is showing us something similar, except he's not calling us to win others to ourselves, but to Christ, that their heart might be open to the work of Christ in their lives and come to Him through how we, as God's priests, serve in our world. So let's read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, your word was made flesh in Jesus, and your word is given to us this day. Lord, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us uh, to understand and to live in light of your holy word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue in our series in 1 Peter called Exiles, and last week we were asked the question from the text, is our fundamental identity as God's people? Peter tells us that 
this is our fundamental identity, and if we are not, we are giving ourselves over to the passions of the flesh. If we do not see ourselves fundamentally as God's people, we are giving ourselves over to the passions of the flesh. And we saw that because Jesus has made us His people, we can live as His people in exile. First, by fighting, not fighting, we said, those out there, but actually fighting the passions of our flesh and by living beautifully. This morning, Peter continues to show these elect exiles that he's writing to, to us, those who he's already said are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, what it looks like to live as priests. Remember that we saw a few weeks ago that the primary identity of God's people in the world, the church, is a spiritual temple, a place where God dwells on the earth as we go about our business, and a holy priesthood, those who serve on God's behalf. We are to live as priests, those who are living sacrifices, who share God's grace as His priests. But think about what it was like to be a priest in the Old Testament. Maybe you've never thought about this before, but it was a messy ministry, right? It was messy to be a priest. I mean, I have not slaughtered a lot of animals in my life, but I, was, I do fish a lot and I do, you know, clean fish. And even a fish is very messy to clean, Think about what, this, what these priests had to do in the order of their ministry. Blood sacrifices that had to be made. Being those who stood before God as those who represented the people. What were they representing the people before God? They were representing the sin of the people before God. They were those who stood in a messy place before a, me- before a messy people interceding before a holy God. Being a royal priesthood sounds really cool, right? <laughs> We're royalty. We're kings and queens of God. We get direct access to God And while all those things are true and good and beautiful, being a priest can be really messy. And so we have to ask a question from our text this morning. Do we believe that the beautiful life is sacrificial? Do we believe that the beautiful life that Peter has been talking about is sacrificial? to live as living spiritual sacrifices? That's the question that confronts us from our text. And the main point that Peter's making is that because Jesus is our priest who gave his life as a sacrifice for us, going back up into chapter 1, right? All this is flowing out of what Peter has already presented as the grounds for 
our life as living sacrifices, as a priestly people, as a holy nation, it's because of the work of Jesus, the lamb without blemish, who is slain for us. Because Jesus is our priest who gave his life as a sacrifice for us, we can live beautiful lives of priestly sacrifice. And just like he addressed last week, he addressed the household servant and by extension showed us all, all believers, what it looks like to submit to the call of God in our lives. He now uses the illustration of wives and husbands. First, he addresses wives in verses 1 through 6. Peter is speaking directly to wives married to unbelieving husbands. This is the primary context that Peter is addressing here, right? What does it mean for his people who are exiles? Remember, we, we said they're not exile in the fact that they were sent off and punished somewhere. They're not exile in the fact that, that God is exiled from them. They're exiles in the, fa- in the way that they interact with the culture that they live in. And so a wife who has become a follower of Jesus and is married to an unbeliever, Peter is addressing directly in this context of exiles, is he is directly speaking to wives married to unbelieving husbands, which as an aside would have been unheard of to speak directly to women as if they had agency in Peter's day. Right? He has first spoken to household servants. Why are, you, why are you speaking to household servants, Peter? They don't have any agency. Peter, why are you speaking to wives in the church? They don't have any agency. Peter is speaking to them because they do have agency. They do have worth extreme value and extreme worth in the sight of God. And Peter will then address husbands married to unbelieving wives, just as he spoke, as I said, directly to household servants in the previous verses. But he is once again using the wife and husband to illustrate to all Christians how we are to live this honorable or beautiful life in exile in a secular or pagan society. Yes, he is addressing household servants directly. Yes, he is addressing wives directly. Yes, he is addressing husbands directly. But he is using them also as an illustration for all of us. Just as wives are to submit themselves to the reasonable authority of their husbands, and just as husbands are to live with understanding and honor to those who are, quote, under them, so are all Christians submit to the reasonable authority of those who have authority over them. And those in authority are to treat those under their authority with understanding and showing them honor. Now, you might notice that I use the term reasonable authority for wives submitting and for Christians in general submitting to authority. And by reasonable, I do not mean whatever I personally think is reasonable. But reasonable meaning whatever doesn't violate God's commands or authority. We don't pick and choose what is reasonable. God does. 
Some have tried to say that since Peter is speaking to wives of unbelieving husbands, that his call to submission is only in this circumstance. And yet Paul's teaching, or and yet his teaching is similar to Paul's teaching. But Paul's teaching is in the context of wives and husbands who are both believers. Right? He calls them to a kind of uh, almost mutual submission out of reverence to Christ, right? Ephesians 5.21, before Paul addresses wives and husbands, Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of reverence to Christ. And so this is the context of which we come to our passage. And I need to also make it very clear, ensure that submission in Scripture is voluntary submission, Husbands do not have the responsibility to ensure that wives submit to them. That's not what Peter's saying here. Women are not told to submit to men in general, but just their husbands. Sometimes the church has gotten that wrong as well. It also doesn't mean that a wife must blindly follow her husband. That's not what submission is. If he is leading to destruction or ruin or uh, other ways in which are harmful to their life together, to their family, even to the community. She, as the quote-unquote subordinate, properly understood has the authority to pull rank. Submission doesn't mean that a wife must take verbal or physical or emotional or financial or sexual or any other kind of abuse. We know this because Paul says that husband's headship over his wife is lived out as Christ loves the church and laid down his life for her. And Peter is pointing to honoring her and showing understanding. So any kind of abuse is not what Paul or Peter is describing when they speak of submission. And according to Scripture, it is grounds for divorce. You see, unfortunately, many in the church have taken the idea that God hates divorce, which, of course, he does because it's destructive. But it's also likely a faulty translation of Malachi 2.16. And so many have made it almost an unthinkable evil for marriage to end in divorce. But here's the thing. As much as God hates divorce, God also hates oppression and injustice. And he will not allow his children to remain in relationships that destroy his children emotionally, physically, or spiritually. We forget that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we've misread the New Testament in light of Old Testament laws on divorce. We've created a cesspool of despair in some, in some circumstances, in some cases within the church. Keeping those in abusive marriages that they feel bound to someone who desires their harm and not their good. That being said, let me also say that in our culture, divorce has become the easy way out. And Christians have also bought into that lie as well. Christians will also give up without putting the hard work in that is often required to bring renewal and repair. And so we must have wisdom and understanding of what and when divorce is the righteous and just thing to do. And yes, I just said divorce can be righteous and just. Second 
Submission of wives is not absolute, right? Peter is showing us that it is not absolute. If husbands require wives to disobey moral norms or follow another religion, then wives should not submit. Right? Peter is writing in this context that um, in that context, in the Greco-Roman world, wives were expected to adopt the religion of their husbands. Wives were expected to submit and follow their husbands in whatever they were doing. And so Peter is addressing them to consider this, this social reality, right? This this idea that they are to submit to their husbands and yet they cannot submit fully to their husbands if they're unbelievers, right? If their husbands are, are worshiping the, 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 the Caesar or if their husbands are worshiping the pantheon of gods, the wife cannot submit to her husband's religious desires, And so Peter is addressing wives who, are, who would be considered to be radically socially different, right? This is a radical thing for a wife to profess faith in Jesus Christ, to profess faith in this one true God. It is be a radical thing in her society for her to do that. And it is the only way for her to live out her calling as a believer in Christ, to submit first and foremost to the rule and reign of Jesus. And yet Peter still says, wives, submit to your husbands as you are able. They are encouraged to submit their husbands whenever possible but there are limits to this submission. Even if it causes their husband's displeasure, they should continue to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. He says, why are you, am I calling you to this? That they might win their husbands. Not by preaching, not by speaking, but by their actions. Peter is also not saying that a believing spouse must at all costs stay with their unbelieving spouse. His instructions are in light of Paul's instructions that spouses should stay married to unbelieving spouses if the unbelieving spouse so desires. But if the unbeliever desires not to remain married, then they are free to divorce, as Paul teaches. And so wives are given this instruction as those who have agency of those who actually decide where and when this submission should take place within the marriage covenant. And then Paul uses this illustration of external beauty. Right? This isn't, as Christians have often done, taking a, a piece of Scripture and taking it out of context and be like, there's this legalistic band on beauty or braiding your hair or all those types of things. That's not what Peter is getting at. Peter is basically pointing out wives, women, this isn't where you find your ultimate beauty. This isn't where you find your ultimate 
identity. There's a vastly superior value of inward beauty. And Peter is illustrating using this how much more beautiful the life of priestly service is, a life that flows out of inner beauty and not what is seen on the outside. Again, Peter is directing this towards women, towards wives, but is true for all believers. Right? For all believers. Men can just as easily get caught up in our external. Right? I'm losing my hair. Right? And it's just this one, this thing, it's like, man, if I could just figure out a way to get my hair to grow back, like, I'd look so good. (laughs) And maybe I should. My kids keep saying that I should try. But But we can get caught up, any of us can get caught up in how we look, our external beauty. And yet Peter is saying, that's not really where that comes from. It's from the inside. It's your internal beauty. It's what God is doing inside of you, out that flows out of you. Both husbands and wives are called to follow Christ in humble and compassionate love, accepting and forgiving grace. Since the husband's role is different, the form of service is different, but it's still the same call. And the wife is called to be submissive to her husband, and the husband is called to honor his wife. And that honor includes considerate understanding. And, Paul, and Peter unpacks this in verse 7. The husband gives to his wife the honor that she is due. Some translations use respect, but that is not really a strong enough word. Peter literally is meaning preciousness. This preciousness of honor. The honor or preciousness that the husband must bestow on his wife is not only the recognition of her place in God's ordinance of marriage. It is the honor that is hers as one of God's precious and holy people. Husbands are to honor their wives. Husbands are to live literally, he says, according to knowledge. And Peter expects husbands to know their wives. Now, men, we sometimes plead ignorance here. We say, like, I don't understand women. But we don't need to understand women, though that does not hurt. But Peter's saying that we need to understand our wife. One commentator says, husbands are like scientists with a narrow field of inquiry. A man should know the preferences, moods, needs of his beloved so that he can love and care for her and honor her. A Christian husband must honor women, especially his wife. Peter says that she is, quote, the weaker vessel, which is most likely referring to the reality that she is physically, probably the weaker, not always, but likely the weaker physically. He's not referring to her spirituality because he says that she is a joint heir of grace. Marriage is a union of two weak and sinful people, even if our weaknesses are sinful in different ways. Peter goes even further. If husbands fail to give that honor, he goes goes further and says, uh, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Right? 
Peter goes even further to say, not only are you to honor and understand according to knowledge your, wi- your wives. Remember, speaking to husbands of unbelieving wives, but certainly applicable to those who are in Christ as well. Peter goes furly and says, if you fail to give that honor, if you fail to understand your wives, not only will your fellowship, your relationship with your wives suffer, but your relationship, your fellowship with God suffers even more. I mean, Peter goes as far to say your prayers will not be heard. They will be hindered. And so Peter is connecting how, our, how the way that we live our lives affect our relationship with God. Not that God somehow is now no longer a part of our lives, but that how we live in relationship with one another actually hinders our relationship with God. Right, this is a little bit of an aside, but think about that, right? Oftentimes we're like, well, you know, me and Jesus, we're good. You know, I know people like that. And they can treat other people with all kinds of disrespect, all kinds of like, just like treat them like garbage. But hey, Jesus and I are cool. Peter's saying no. <laughs> right? If you can't honor and respect and live with others in a way that treats them with this honor and understanding. How do you expect to have a relationship with your heavenly Father? Once again, Peter's using husbands as an illustration for the broader church. We find ourselves in positions of influence. How do we honor those under our influence? How do we understand or have knowledge of those under our influence? Do we seek that they serve us or do we seek to serve them? How does this way we think of positions of authority change? How is that transformed in light of Scripture's teaching here? It is Christ's example that Peter continually calls us to follow in all the relationships of life, right? It is a priestly calling the Scripture over and over calls us as God's people primarily to. We are not to be overly concerned about maintaining our rights. Jesus trusted His Father, the righteous judge, to do that, and so should we. Jesus didn't grasp for privilege. He laid down His life for us. And he and we who follow Jesus do not grasp for privilege because in Christ we are already privileged beyond our wildest dreams, beyond our wildest imagination. As followers of Jesus, we seek opportunities to imitate Christ in willing service. Because Jesus is our priest who gave his life as a sacrifice for us, we can live beautiful lives of priestly service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is often difficult to understand. It is sometimes difficult to hear. And yet, Lord, you come to us as our priest. 
as the one who laid down your life for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us as your people to lay down our lives, to lay down our lives in such a way that the world who does not know you would rejoice that you are our God and Savior and would come to you. And Lord, lay down our lives in such a way that would seek the good, not of ourselves, but of others. We pray this in Jesus' name.